We're continuing our series in Nehemiah, and today we're in Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 13. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. If you are new here, we welcome you, and just to let you know how we kind of go through our messages, we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible, and currently we're in the book of Nehemiah, so if some of you are wondering, like, why is he doing Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13? It's like such an odd passage to go through. That's why. You can catch up on the entire series by jumping onto our website and going to our iTunes there. We found out that the Israelites rebuilt the wall to half of its height. But the threat was still very, very present. So Nehemiah came up with a strategy to defend the walls from threats outside of the wall, but brewing inside the walls was a greater threat, a threat that compromised the unity of the Israelites, which would equally prevent the completion of the wall just as much as threats outside of those walls. And so this continues to happen today. We see this today, and Paul warned us about this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We know that when we go about doing work for the glory of God, that we will face opposition. And it will come from the outside, which we expect that. We expect it to come from the outside. What we probably don't expect is that it comes from inside the walls, among ourselves. And this section of chapter 5 will show us a couple of things. First, in verses 1 through 5, it'll show us the problem that was emerging from within those walls. And then from verses 6 through 10, it'll show us how this problem was resolved. 
Now we know that the wall took 52 days to complete in chapter 6, so the rebuilding of the wall was not solely to blame for the problems that were occurring at Jerusalem at the time. The wall probably didn't help it, but it wasn't what caused this problem. Now what was the problem? Now according to verses 1 through 5, the problems were famine and this financial struggle that the people experienced. Now this wall surely didn't help, but these problems would be there regardless of whether the wall was being built or not. What did the wall do? Well, the wall did pull away workers who used to spend their time farming, and because of the contentious political climate, any trade of goods, as we know, Sanballat, Geshem, the Ashdodites, and Tobiah, they surrounded them, and so the opportunity for trade, even for food, is really disrupted throughout this entire area. So we know that farming's disrupted, trade's disrupted, but you'll notice that the people were not protesting against the wall. They weren't protesting against their outside enemies. They weren't protesting against Nehemiah. You look at verse 1 at who they were protesting against. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. That's who they had a problem with. Now why them? Well, it's because these Jewish brothers took food for themselves and they didn't leave enough for those weaker than they were at an affordable level. Entire families left without food. Verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So there wasn't enough food for the people to feed their families because those who could help in a time of need didn't. Verse 3, There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So these people were borrowing against every asset that they had just to eat. And who do you think is providing these mortgages against their fields and vineyards and houses? It is those people who could afford to do so, who had the means to do so. So here's a classic example of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And for those who were trying to keep afloat and they didn't want to take out a loan against their assets because in a time of financial crisis, real estate isn't worth all that much, is it? Because you remember that the housing bubble that was just here that popped not too long ago that if you were a person of means back then, you could snatch up quite a few properties that weren't all that expensive in comparison to what they are even today or when that tech boom was happening. And this is what kind of happens just in economics. So people were forced to sell their assets at these really discounted prices to their Jewish brothers who had more means just so they could eat and feed their family. And there were those who needed to borrow just to pay their taxes on their property because if they didn't, then they'd lose that property. Verses 4 and 5, And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards got so bad that some had to give their children as servants to their lenders to pay off the debt. And it seems that according to the latter part of verse 5, women were enslaved as second wives or concubines, that it was something more disgraceful than making people whose flesh was considered as your own flesh, as your brothers, and our children as their children. These people were doing it to one another, yet they were the same race, the same ethnicity, the same people fighting for the same cause. They were people of that same race whose value was no greater than any other person, yet they were doing this to each other. 
separated just because of financial status. Same nationality, same cause that they were fighting for, but those who couldn't afford to eat had to sell their children into slavery to those that they considered brothers because they had a greater financial means. And they took advantage of this situation. And these were people who claimed to know God. These were people who were claiming to do the work of God. And they were doing this to one another. And these were people who were mistreating those who were less fortunate than them. You look at this phrase in verse 5. It is not in our power to help it. Everything is being taken away from them. Any asset that they've held, any collateral is being stripped away from them. All of their assets, mortgage, children sold into slavery to people who were considered their own. And their outcry against the unjust, insensitive, and greedy people of Jerusalem reaches Nehemiah. It's one thing to fight against a common enemy outside of your walls. But what about when those who are supposed to be on your side are actually your worst adversaries. And this is how Nehemiah responded to all of this. Verse 8, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah recognized that this was not right. And he was angry about it, right? Just the righteous indignation within himself. And there are some instances when anger is the appropriate emotion for us. It's an appropriate time to express this emotion in times of justice. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul wrote, Be angry and do not sin. Most of us aren't good at this. Right as I am prepping for this sermon, just exactly as I'm prepping for this sermon, you'd think that I'm at the peak of realizing, like, be angry but do not sin. My kids are fighting outside. They spill all their food and all that stuff. And I just, rah! And then right after that, I just feel like a tap on my heart from God saying like, good job. <laughs> so I, I had to repent. I had to go to my kid and say, sorry, daddy overreacted. And I'm really sorry for doing that. In our anger, there's this propensity to sin. Like, I don't know what it is. It just boils and you just can't contain that thing, right? But while angry, we're not typically righteous about it. We allow the selfishness of our own feelings or the pride that we have inside to just kind of pollute all that stuff. And it makes it unrighteous, even though, yeah, it's not good to fight and it's not good to throw your food all around. But is our anger against the injustice? Here's an example of being angry and not sinning. Jesus. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Have you ever noticed that in the text? Because usually when we think of Jesus angry, we think of him turning tables over. Have you ever thought about right here? He was angry. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus was angry, but he did not sin. Righteous indignation, which is what Nehemiah experienced. And this is what he did about it in verse 7. I took counsel with myself. This is what I needed to do before I bursted out to the dining room and talked to my children about them. I took counsel with myself, which is often a good thing to do before speaking out against any type of injustice or wrongdoing or thing like that. 
Righteous anger is not a bad thing. It's a really good thing. It's what often accompanies it that gets us in trouble. It's the sin that can follow anger closely that is the problem. So Nehemiah slows down. He thinks through the things he's going to say so that what he says and how he says it is not sinful. Sometimes we need to take time to counsel with ourselves. There are many issues out there that cause our blood to boil, right? A lot of them. So many unjust things happening in our world that cause righteous anger within us to arise. But how are we going about with our righteous anger? Is what comes with and or after the righteous anger sinful? The injustice of what happened in Baltimore is cause for righteous indignation. But sin not. But sin not. And many Christians have a stance on a number of issues, a bunch of issues. And I need to warn us about having the posture of Pharisees who are known for their self-righteous attitudes. Some of our anger is righteous, but sin not. May we be like Jesus, may we be like Nehemiah, continuing on in verse 7. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Many of us don't like conflict. And for those of you who do, you're odd. But anyway, <laughs> most of us don't like conflict, right? We don't want to go telling people, hey, you're wrong, or all that kind of stuff. And maybe some of you do, and let me know who you are so I can use you. But we need to be honest, right? We need to be honest. We need to be honest and truthful and frank about injustice. And sometimes we go about things indirectly when a direct approach is needed for a situation. Many times just being direct and addressing an injustice is the better way to go about it because indirectly we just kind of cause confusion and we just kind of cause things to be unclear and it just doesn't work well that way. Nehemiah tells them what the charges were directly. Continuing on in verse 7, I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. So those who were well off were doing what was best for themselves. They weren't looking out for other people. They were just doing what was in their best interest. And a lot of people in our society would see nothing wrong with this at all. That, hey, this is just entrepreneurship. This is just me being a good steward of my money and making money like this. Hey, this should be applauded. We have entire businesses around mortgages, loans, and leveraging debt, don't we? Huge sectors of business. Where those who have money, they hedge their money without a care about how it affects people they are lending it to. And that was the last financial crisis we just experienced, wasn't it? People just doing that freely and like, not, hey, if you can't afford it, that's on you. But I'll lend it to you. Go ahead and take it. People looking to make the greatest profits, just hedging their own money without a care about how it affects other people. And yes, the rich had means, and yes, others who needed to eat had assets to borrow against so that those who had means could let them borrow money so that they could eat. But in a time of desperate need, in a time of famine, is it right? Is it good to take advantage of those who just simply need to eat? To stay alive? To charge them interest? To make money off of people? Just to eat. Enslaving their children so they can eat. 
See, we're not talking about purchasing of unnecessary items or living a luxurious life. This was for food. This is to eat. There are people who identified themselves here as children of God. And this is how those who had treated those who didn't have, this is how the rich were treating the poor. These were people who were once, all of them, a slave race. All of them. And how soon they forgot where they came from and how God delivered them. And this is the same for us. You know, maybe we come from backgrounds of poverty or where we don't have much. And then now we're at a place where eh, we're pretty comfortable. We're okay. And how soon we forget where God pulled us from, taken us out of. And so Nehemiah gathers them around. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Silent. Just like the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Silent because what could they say? They knew they were wrong. They had bought back the Jews who were sold into slavery to the Gentiles. They bought back their brothers. But what are they doing now? They're guilty of the same treatment as those Gentiles that they just bought their brothers back from. And they're doing the same thing to their own brothers. Forgetting that they were children of God and forgetting that those they were mistreating were their brothers and sisters in God. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. The Jews were given instructions on how to deal with one another in regards to financial dealings. If you look back to Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Exodus, it's all in there. I'm just going to go over two verses really briefly. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So lending money to fellow Jews was fine, but there was a way to go about that. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five. If you lend money to any of my people with who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. What they were doing was not good. Let's flip that on ourselves for just a moment. How much of what we are doing is not good as a church, as Christians? And how many of us are willing to address what is not good? And this is a really hard thing to do in the Bay Area because good is relative in our society. It's hard to put a standard as to what is good when you're just talking to regular people. You walk around the lake and you ask for definitions of good and you'll get all sorts of stuff. This is one that's really hard for me to get my mind around. You tell people that sex trafficking of minors is not good. You will be surprised at how many people think it's just fine. It's crazy. Thinking that, no, that's a child's choice. A child can decide that. A child decides that they want to make the money, so we need to have the opportunity for them to exercise their choice. The average age of a child being trafficked in the United States is 12 years old, and that trend is going younger and younger, because this is just the average. Two weeks ago, New Day for Children, We rescued a 12-year-old girl from Concord who was being sex trafficked by her mom to just provide for her drug habit. She was sex trafficked since she was 10. It was two years until we got to her. And you'd think that 
any law fighting against sex trafficking of minors would be unanimously passed. It's not. We're in Sacramento fighting legislation all the time trying to get things passed. There is opposition to it. I don't even understand it. I don't get it. And to me, and probably many of you, this is crazy. But this is the world we actually live in. Good is relative. A world who has lost the fear of God, which Nehemiah reminded Jerusalem of in verse 9 here, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? The nations of Jerusalem's enemies, they were looking at them from all sides, right? Just like those who oppose the gospel are looking at us. They're looking at us. Are we really behaving like God's children? Some Christians are no different from the people in the world. They're no different. Some are even worse. When a non-Christian can't tell the difference between you and a Christian, there's a problem. There's a problem. When the things you say and the things that you do are immoral, unethical, or illegal, you are losing your Christian testimony. You can't offer anything more than what the world offers them. Christians spend a ton of time telling people how bad everything is, don't they? All this stuff out there, I'm included. I just told you about the sex trafficking thing. I'm included in this. I'm not innocent of this because things are pretty bad. They're pretty bad. But we tend to say how everything outside of us is bad, outside of the walls, when I think things on the inside are pretty bad too. This is what's happening in Nehemiah's time. And sure, things outside of the wall were pretty bad, but things inside of the wall, that was ugly. You expect that outside of the walls. Inside of the walls, what is going on here? We need to take a look in the mirror. Christians need to take a look in the mirror and look at how we are treating one another. What are we doing to one another? Because we don't treat each other very well all of the time. And when people on the outside see that, why would they want to come in? Why would they want to come into this? How are we treating one another? Even if the work of God looks good on the outside, because the walls are being built and all the materials were provided for, a ton of volunteerism was happening, a lot of mobilization, but the inside is just rotten. Forget about it. No one's coming in. Keep it, right? Keep that to yourself. How are we treating one another? Because if we can't treat each other well, those of us who identify with being children of God, how can we possibly treat those outside of the faith well if you don't even treat your brothers well? And that's a big problem Jerusalem faced. And Nehemiah pleaded with them to change, to be in line with how God instructed them to live. Verse 10, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Nehemiah had money to lend. He's probably one of the wealthiest guys here. He was working in the king's court. The king gave him a military, all the resources, materials to build his own house. This is a wealthy guy here. But the thing is, he's just not unjust about it. If he was, other people would have called him out on it, right? And what would he be angry about if he was just part of this whole thing? 
So obviously, Nehemiah was a person of means to lend out money and grain, but he wasn't part of the injustice. And it was time to do more than just talk about it, but to make things right, to make things good right now. Christians have done some really, really horrendous things. We can go through a whole list of things, and I just want to share with you one that's just crazy to me. In Dakar, Senegal, there's a slave port there that the president, his wife, mother-in-law, they visited it. And from the dungeons below where a lot of the video and photographs were taken, the slaves were led through these dungeons through this door. The door was called the door of no return. Because once you got on that boat from there, you weren't going back. You were making your way to the new world. Here's the crazy thing. Right above that door, right above the dungeons, was their chapel. It was a chapel for the slave traders to worship God to pray for a safe passage across the Atlantic Ocean. That they wouldn't lose any slaves, not because they were made in the image of God, but because those slaves represented dollar signs. They obviously didn't see the hypocrisy. They obviously didn't see this. Just like the nobles and the officials in Nehemiah's day did not see this. So for us, what slave ports are we worshiping on top of today? We need to ask this question of ourselves. Is there anything that we are doing that is not good? It's not good. And when we see that it is not good, we need to make it right. Verses 11 and 12. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and the oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So, great. Now you notice this. They said what they were going to do but they didn't do it yet. And so we know Nehemiah to be a man of prayer and a man of action, and so Nehemiah's like, you said that. I'm going to call you out on it now. All right, here we go. No empty promises here, and so what does he do? And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as promised. Because Nehemiah's like, no empty promises here. Priests, all you religious guys, come here, because you got to hear this. Come here. These guys have something to swear to you. Take an oath on. And then Nehemiah does something else. Verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. So he does the truffle shuffle, right, with his garment. He's just like, and Nehemiah gives them this symbolic shake. If you guys don't know what Truffle Shuffle is, just watch Goonies. It's like a classic. It's awesome. And so he does a shake where he acts out what it's going to be like. If you guys break your promise, you're going to be like these crumbs that are in my garment or like this lint or whatever. You're going to be shaken out of this thing. And all the assembly said, amen. Shake them out. (laughs) Do the Taylor Swift thing. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Church, we need to be careful with what happens in here, inside our walls. More, I would challenge, than fearing what's outside. We need to take a really good look at ourselves. We need to identify what's wrong with us more than what's wrong with people outside the church. We're really good at that. Oh, those people, this and that, people, that. How about us? God has shown us what is good. 
And when he reveals that to us, we need to act on it. Amen to that. And without that amen, the praises that we do in here, they don't mean anything. In the slave ports, that chapel on top of those dungeons, it means nothing. It meant nothing. The assembly said amen and praised the Lord. That's with our sins as a church and our sins individually. How do we deal with our sin when it is revealed to us by others and by the word of God? So yes, we acknowledge it, we confess it, we repent of it, we change our ways, we let our community know what we've done. We own it. Dad flipped his lid. I'm sorry. And we need to change what we are doing and what we're going to do, how that's going to be different from before. And whatever promises we have made to make things good and right, we need to keep them. You can't retract on that. Otherwise, you risk being shaken out of the fellowship of God. And perhaps that's someone here this morning. You claim to be a follower of God, but you're not following him. There are promises that you've made, and you aren't keeping them. You've lost the fear of the Lord. Praising the Lord does not come without an amen. Amen is declaring to God, so be it. You have your way. And until we submit our will to his will, there won't be any praise coming from our heart. Amen and praise. They go hand in hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask God that we aren't just taking in more information from your scriptures, even though you have the greatest of wisdom. We ask, Lord, that it isn't simply a conviction that we are sensing in our heart because of what your word tells us and how your word convicts us. Father, may we act upon what we know is in your word, that we change, that our hearts and our minds, our spirits, our souls are changed to be more like you. I ask God as we look at ourselves that we are able to see things that are not good. In Jesus' name, amen.